Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy Rails tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we are swapping geographic locations. This is a, a bi-coastal show. You're not back in New York. I'm back in LA. Can you feel the Cuomo era unraveling uh, under your feet? Yeah, all, uh, all all around me here. It's actually like all anybody's been talking about here for the last couple of days. So uh, pretty big. I mean, he's like dominated New York political landscape for a decade. So it's hard to overstate what a big deal it is for uh, for him to be him to be out, but uh, for him to be I, I don't toppled. think any, anybody's surprised. I mean, I, I've known people who worked for him. I mean, none of the authoritarian behaviors uh, were surprising. I think the the depravity in the report, you know, exceeded, I think, even some of his critics' uh, view. And, and my parents, who liked his performance in COVID, even they, uh, they were very much ready for this uh, step as well. So we'll see. Yeah. Uh, good riddance, Governor. Um didn't really enjoy you while you were here, but loved to watch you go. I don't know if that's the saying, but see ya. Well, yeah, and, and what's interesting is he's again he dominated New York state politics so much that like it's wide open. Like there's no obvious you know successor in the next election. So be interesting to see. Yeah, that will be a big election. Uh, speaking of big elections coming up this year, uh, if you listeners want to get involved today and help out with future elections. Uh, help out grassroots organizers across the country, go to votesaveamerica.com slash no off years, all one word. Uh, and if you live in California, please fill out your recall ballot. I did it today. Vote no on the recall. Leave the rest blank. If, even if you don't like Gavin Newsom, your choices are basically him or like some crazy anti-vaxxer right-wing radio host. So don't mess around <laughs> yeah. with this one. But <laughs> votesaveamerica.com slash no off years will it'll get you to tons of volunteer opportunities. Uh, there's no such thing as an off year anymore. All these elections are important, whether they're state, local, federal, all of them. So get involved. Um, on the show today, we got a lot of good stuff. We're going to cover some, uh, you know, all the news out of Afghanistan is bad, so we're going to talk through all of it. Uh, we'll talk about Mike Pompeo and the missing whiskey, Sudan and Ethiopia, uh, some big climate change news. Ben, I loved your interview last week, by yeah, the way, yeah. uh, with the, the climate activist. She was very inspiring. Uh, COVID update. The Olympics are over, which is sad. We got some final updates. Uh, and then some space-based idiocy that I wanted to flag for you guys. And then, Ben, you are doing our interview today uh, talking about uh, some authoritarians, maybe Tucker Carlson. Is that, the, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, well, I'm going to be talking to Sabol Shpanyi, who's a, a journalist who's been right in the middle of uh, a couple of stories we've been covering. Uh, one is, uh, you know, he was all over the authoritarian bromance, uh, fascist bromance between Tucker Carlson and and his, his new best friend, Victor Orban. Um, he's also been all over the story of uh, Victor Orban opening the door to the Chinese Communist Party to build a massive university um, in Hungary. I don't know if you saw, uh, Tommy, that in the official transcript that was released by Orban of his interview with Tucker, they they censored out yes. Tucker's criticism of, of China, which goes to uh -huh. show, you know, uh, who Tucker's wrapping his arms around there. But mm -hmm. also, Sabolch uh, was um, spied on by the NSO uh, outfit uh, story we covered a few weeks ago. He was one of the two Hungarian journalists who was surveilled there. So so lots to talk about there. 
Well, we're going to count those uh, intercepted comms towards our download numbers for the episode because I'm sure they'll be listening in uh, before it goes live. (laughs) (laughs) So let's start in Afghanistan uh, because we talked about it last week, but things have actually gotten considerably worse since that time. Uh, Over the last few days, seven provincial capital cities have been overrun by the Taliban. That includes cities and provinces in northern Afghanistan that have historically been anti-Taliban and where local warlords and militia groups managed to hold territory, even when the Taliban controlled Kabul back in the late 90s. Um, The Afghan special forces uh, are fighting heroically. They're doing all the heavy lifting, but they are reportedly exhausted and in some cases literally out of food. The regular army um, units are, are often retreating or disbanding or otherwise just not really fighting. The The fighting is moving further and further into urban areas. Civilian casualties are increasing. The Taliban are, is also conducting a series of assassination campaigns against government officials and activists and civil society, including an attack on the acting defense minister's home in a heavily fortified neighborhood of Kabul that killed eight people, not the defense minister, luckily. The U.S. is still conducting airstrikes on, on Taliban targets, but those flights are now based outside of the country because the U.S. handed over Bagram Air Base to the Afghans. And I suspect that you know, the airstrikes generally are, are, are less useful uh, if we're talking about you know, urban combat because you can't just you know, bomb urban targets. So, you know, Ben, these stories are just devastating. You know, people who worked with the U.S. and, and the NATO are, are getting killed. Innocent civilians are getting killed. Thousands of Afghans are getting displaced uh, or forced to live under Taliban control. Last week, we talked about you know, some criticism of Biden for withdrawing too quickly and not doing enough first to get military interpreters and others who worked with the U.S. out of the country. I think that's a separate issue. It's a valid one. But what we're seeing today is a different story, I think. I mean, these Taliban military advances suggest that there's a, a far bigger problem that you know the U.S. has been in Afghanistan for 20 years. We spent trillions of dollars. More than 2,700 U.S. service members have been killed. Over 100,000 Afghans have been killed. But here's my question for you. I mean, you see these results, what's happening. Like the Taliban are taking over these, these capitals. Um, doesn't this tell us that like this core mission of training and equipping the Afghan military has just fundamentally failed? Yeah, uh, I think it does. I mean, it, you know, really, I was thinking about what angle we could discuss here, Tommy, uh, because as you said, the news is the news, and and it's pretty clear that the Taliban is just steadily advancing, even in places like you know the city of Kunduz, like not exactly their strongholds. Um, and to me, you know, people can make it an indictment of Biden's decision to leave, and we can talk about that. And we have talked about that, um, and, and and the speed with which he left. But as you just alluded to, it's kind of an indictment of the entire theory of the case of this war effort. Um, not the destruction of al-Qaeda. I mean, that was a targeted mission where you go in and you try to take out uh, certain terrorist safe havens. Obviously, that bled into Pakistan. Mm-hmm. But the model of training and financing this kind of massive Afghan security force as as the entity that you could hand this over to, um, I think that needs to come under a lot of scrutiny because I think to a large extent, if you look at who's actually doing the bulk of the frontline fighting, it's these special forces, as you say. And, and there was this kind of almost the size was the goal of the Afghan National Security Forces. Right. And in order for them to sustain just their basic operations and their logistics, they were hugely dependent not just on the U.S. military, but also on private security contractors who were performing some of the basic functions for them. And now that those private security contractors are also leaving – it's hard for the Afghan National Security Forces to, to function. And so the idea of training kind of this massive military that you finance 
that has, as Biden himself said in, in a recent press conference, you know, has more numbers, more hardware than the Taliban, but they're not like a cohesive, tight fighting force. You know, clearly that didn't work in Iraq, as we saw when uh, Mosul was overrun by ISIS. Um, and and it hasn't worked here either. And so, yeah, I, I think there's, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of, 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 of efforts put into looking back. But I think one of the basic points here is that our capacity to to shape events in these distant countries that we don't understand that well, that, you know, the U.S. public doesn't have an appetite for staying for several decades, that we sometimes think oh, we can construct a military and if it's this size, it can get this amount of work done. You know, that this is a, a lesson in the limits of what the U.S. can accomplish through through military intervention itself. Um, and because even again, like even if we kept that small force there, the Taliban was still advancing. They just weren't advancing at the speed. So it's not like everything was was going well. And then Biden pulled out and the bottom fell out. It's like, no, everything was already deteriorating. And then that deterioration accelerated with this pullout. And, and again, I think that 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 should teach us that, you know, the 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 model where we think we can engineer events in other countries through military action you know, hasn't borne out in either Iraq or Afghanistan and something we should take a lot of stock of uh, 20 years after 9-11. Yeah, or build a military in the same sort of image as our own. I mean, here, here's a question that I bet the Biden folks are, are debating right now, which is you're seeing these district capitals topple and topple quickly. There's real concern now about, you know, whether Kabul will be next or, you know, or, or how quickly Kabul will fall. Uh, I believe that right now there are 4,000 people working at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, including 1,400 diplomats. There are 650 U.S. troops on the ground still defending the embassy, I believe. That embassy compound is a fortress. But, I mean, at one point, do you think the U.S. government will start thinking about whether it's safe to have a diplomatic presence in Afghanistan? Because, I mean, like, it would work. Look, if I were serving there right now, I would be pretty worried. Yeah, I think at a certain point, they're clearly just going to make a decision. You know, what I think they hoped for in a best case scenario is that with the U.S. withdrawal, I think it was inevitable the Taliban was going to make some advances. But I think what they hoped for is that the Afghan government and security forces could hold some territory and that some kind of stalemate would emerge that could then kind of be channeled into a diplomatic negotiation. Um, And in the current trajectory of events, it's hard to see what the Afghan government can hold at all. Um, maybe uh, like an island of, uh, of Kabul. But I, I think what they'll have to de- decide is, in addition to kind of continued airstrikes, are we prepared to deploy more military force to just keep Kabul from falling so that at least there's some outpost um, of a, a different political force and military force in Afghanistan that can allow you to have some protracted effort to get into negotiations? You know, right now, it feels like uh, with the current momentum, you know, it's very unlikely that uh, that they can hold out in, in Kabul and some other cities. But, um, I, you know, that's going to that's going to bring some tough decisions in the White House as to whether you deploy some some at least you know more robust air power on a more sustained basis to create some hopefully some kind of perimeter around Kabul. Yeah. And, you know, the, the statements out of the White House make it sound like there's no way they're sending troops back in. Yeah. Um, just yeah. before, you know, we started recording, uh, Zalmay Khalilzad, the U.S. official leading the peace negotiations with the Taliban, uh, put out a statement where he warned the Taliban that a government that takes power by force 
won't be recognized internationally. I mean, maybe he's working with like the best diplomatic stick he has available to him, but I just, I can't imagine the Taliban giving a shit about that. No, I th- and look, the Taliban wasn't recognized internationally by many countries back when it ruled Afghanistan uh, before 9-11. And that they didn't seem to give a shit about that. And we've even seen, you know, in recent, Uh, weeks, you know, a Taliban delegation received in China, you know, so there are countries uh, that are going to deal with them um, as as a, a, if not a governing, recognized government of Afghanistan, at least as like a, an authority inside of Afghanistan. Um, I do think to come back to this point that we've hit a a few times, but it can't be stressed enough, like it's this question of who to try to evacuate. I think should not be restricted just to kind of military interpreters um, or just to people who work, you know, with U.S. media organizations, as has been discussed. But there are a lot of people that were USAID contractors or a lot of organizations that got grants from USAID to set up, you know, women's rights organizations, human rights organizations. I really do think that if, look, if the Biden team has decided and and it's a decision that, you know, you and I um, have expressed some understanding of, uh, that that there's just diminishing returns for having a U.S. military presence. At some point, we're going to have to leave. It's been 20 years. Um, I do think that there's a higher threshold of responsibility to get as many people out who work with us as possible. And again, not just people who are like employed by the military, but people who are like started organizations that receive funding from the United States because we encourage them to stand up for women's rights or girls' education or human rights. Um, because, you know, when you think of the most horrific scenarios, it's, it's the kind of mass retribution taken out on those people, many of whom are based in Kabul. And frankly, if you are headed to a scenario where what, you know, you're kind of hoping for, uh, and, and hope is, is not the best word for such a grim scenario, but is that the, that the Taliban, you know, kind of, once again, discredits itself by the way it rules and invites greater opposition to it over time. You need those people to stay alive. And, you know, those people who represent Afghan civil society in an alternative future so that if things change in however many years, like you have people that can go back and help put the pieces back together. So there's moral reasons and there are also practical reasons why you would want to save as many people as possible who've kind of participated in this project of of trying to have a, a, an Afghanistan that represents the rights of all its people and not just the Taliban's agenda. Yeah. Uh, okay. That was a uh, very grim topic. So let's talk about something very stupid, uh, which is Mike Pompeo. So failed former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is in the news uh, because of a missing bottle of whiskey. Ben, I don't know if you saw this. Yeah. In 2019, uh, the government of Japan gave Pompeo a bottle of whiskey worth $5,800. Can't imagine paying that much for whiskey, but the gift itself isn't that weird. Foreign governments often give the president uh, or give senior members of the president's staff these lavish gifts that basically immediately get recorded, taken away by the State Department, and then the recipient can either turn it over to the National Archives forever or buy it back with their own personal cash. But this special bottle of booze went missing. And Mike Pompeo was asked about this by Fox News last week in a moment of accidental journalism by (laughs) the Fox News team. And he kind of stuttered and stammered and said it never got to him, but if it had been Diet Coke, he would have drank it. It was kind of the joke he attempted. What's your take, Ben? Where is the bottle? Do you believe, Mike, that he didn't just slug this thing down on the plane ride home? So, I mean, first of all, like just so people understand how this works, like I'll never forget the time we went on our first trip to Saudi Arabia in 2009. 
and I arrive at my like little guest house that I was staying at, you know, each of the staff was assigned to one. And there was a suitcase full of, of like jewels, <laughs> like it was literally mm-hmm. a suitcase that I opened and it had like, it had like, you know, like a necklace and a watch or I don't know what was in it. Um, and I thought that they were like trying to bribe me because I was working on like the Cairo. Yeah. Speech, all you guys you know? were like, what the so fuck? So I was like, oh my God, am I, am I, am I, did I just get this? But then Favreau was staying in the same compound as me and he got the exact same gift and then turned out everybody got a suitcase full of jewels. And that's when the state department explained us, oh no, don't worry about it. We just take it. You know, we'll let you know if you want to buy this. And I think it was valued at like tens of thousands of dollars or something. Nobody ever does that, right? You know? I like that they gave you the chance to stash it in your bag uh, before telling you that they knew that the, the jewels were in there. Yeah, well, but like, and this happened, you know, again and again, Obama, like the gifts, these gifts are given protocol office to protocol office. So what's very weird about this, right, is that like normally there wouldn't even be a question like the bottle of whiskey would go to like the State Department protocol people, just take it back and put it in whatever warehouse they put it in. Or I think maybe they sell some of this stuff for charity or something. So it's kind of odd and peculiar that of all the gifts that Mike Pompeo received and, mm-hmm. and look like he gets them in every country you go to, you get some dumb gifts uh, that the, the multi thousand dollar bottle of whiskey is what goes missing. Knowing Pompeo. He's probably not the kind of guy that like had a good time with this whiskey. He probably re-gifted it to like some some Koch brothers type donor, you know, like mm. at, the, at the maybe it was served Tommy at the at the Madison dinners, you know. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, I thought about that. I bet he got drunk and yelled at his staff, which is kind well, of no, like I, what he does. I love this guy like throwing the State Department under the bus because he kind of made yeah, another sneering them. thing about how like you know if anybody fucked this up, it was clearly the State Department. Like, what a great boss Mike Pompeo is, you know? Like, how'd you yeah, like to work yeah. for that guy? And he's throwing you under the bus for every single thing that happens, including the fact that he he lost a several thousand dollar bottle of whiskey. Yeah, you, you drank it. You. Schlubby, you bully. drank it or, um, or you regifted it, man. Come on, yeah, you're the worst. Uh, okay, some news out of Sudan. So, our friend USAID administrator Samantha Power took a visit to Sudan. She went to Khartoum, she gave a major speech, she announced some additional humanitarian assistance, and she also visited a refugee camp that hosts uh, Ethiopians who have been driven out of Ethiopia because of the civil war there, the conflict in Tigray. Then, sort of some interesting news on top of that, then Sudan's transitional government voted unanimously to join the International Criminal Court, or ICC. Um, I'm sure this was a pretty remarkable trip for Samantha, who is, you know, one of the world's experts on the genocide that happened in Darfur, visited there under very different circumstances a long time ago. Then what do you think it would mean if if Sudan joined the ICC and people like former Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir were handed over for prosecution? Like, what, what are the stakes there? I mean, I, it'd just be like a tremendous sign that that international justice can work. Like one of the reasons, this is momentous for two reasons. One is on the international justice front. Bashir was kind of the poster boy of impunity for years because he'd been indicted by the ICC and he kind of flaunted it and was like, screw you. And he kind of pressured other countries, particularly in Africa, to say, don't cooperate with the ICC, continue to deal with me. And his ability to get away with that kind of undercut the credibility of the court. I think if he is prosecuted, what that demonstrates is at some point, justice is coming for you. You know, that like mm-hmm. you may evade this for five years, 10 years, 15 years, but whether you're the Burmese junta or whether you're someone like Bashir, whoever you are, like once you get tarred with that indictment, like just because you can evade it for a period of time doesn't mean the justice isn't coming. And that's a very powerful message. I think it's also a reminder that like 
pretty extraordinary political events have happened in Sudan. Uh, you know, uh, that you had this kind of mass mobilization for democracy that successfully did mm-hmm. oust Bashir and did lead to a transitional government. Look, there's huge challenges there. There's still a pretty entrenched military. There's like some autocratic neighbors, uh, particularly our friends in the Gulf who like to to pour money in there and don't want to see a full democracy. But, you know, things continue to progress somewhat in Sudan. It, it's a sign that that you know, when people stand up and demand change, like they can, they can see tangible results. You know, it's also a sign, yep. though, that that very fragile transition. One of the things that's putting it at risk is this conflict, you know, next door in e- Ethiopia and Eritrea that risks kind of spreading and and pulling in neighbors. And and so it's yet another reason why people should be concerned about the direction of events in, in Tigray. Yeah, and and just before we started recording, uh, I saw that the Ethiopian Prime Minister uh, Abiy Ahmed has called on civilians to join the army in the fight against the northern rebels in Tigray. Um, you know, the the rebels up in the north had staged this major offensive, had taken back a lot of the territory that they lost. But you know, calling on civilians to join the fighting seems like a very bad sign that this this war is going to escalate and not end anytime soon. So it's something we should keep watching. It's a reminder that that these situations that are already tragic can get worse. I mean, because the situation when everybody's turned into a combatant, including civilians, is a recipe for just a lot of suffering and instability. And and so the the, the imperative of trying to get this into some peace process and some kind of ceasefire and negotiation you know, that, that continues to be acute. And, and this is something that the Biden administration and a lot of other governments and hopefully governments in Africa step up. Because if you look at organizations like the African Union, which is based in Ethiopia, if you look at all these neighbors um, like Kenya, like important countries, um, they're going to suffer if this conflict continues to go off the rails. And so a lot of countries have a lot of interest at stake in preventing further deterioration here. And ne- never mind yeah. the, 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 the human beings caught in the middle of this. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. 
The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Crooked World. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Crooked World. Speaking of a lot of countries having a stake in preventing further deterioration, let's talk about climate change. Because the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, released a massive new climate report that was based on an analysis of more than 14,000 different studies, and it paints a very bleak picture. So here's some key takeaways. One, you know, the report is just unequivocal about the fact that humans are warming the planet by burning fossil fuels and that the impact is being felt literally everywhere. The CO2 we've released already has basically locked in more warming and extreme weather for the next 30 years. And the rate of change in, in areas like sea level rise is happening more quickly than before. So things are accelerating. If the world does nothing, the temperature could rise from three to six degrees Celsius, which would be catastrophic. But if we are aggressive and there's a global effort to cut emissions, that could limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. So there's some hope here. You know, the, just a personal aside, then I also hope that like industry is figuring out some way to pull carbon out of the atmosphere to help with this effort. But, you know, governments need to act first. So, you know, this study is especially valuable because it draws this link between extreme weather events and climate change. And that is important because a lot of people don't do that. They don't think climate change will impact them personally. But I think here's the big question. The next UN climate change conference is coming up in November. Do you think this report will do enough to get the world to come together and to act like and act at the scale that's necessary? Because, you know, we've seen uh, that not necessarily happen in some of the recent summits. I mean, I, I had a lot of thoughts and feelings in, in reading the summaries of this report. Um, the first is, I, I don't think you can emphasize enough how selfish, reckless, short-sighted, and, and really cruel the climate denialism in, in, in governments like our own has been over the years. I mean, like, what is it going to look like to future generations that like Donald Trump stood up and like pulled out of the Paris Agreement and said he cared about Pittsburgh and not Paris and 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 that that our politics I mean to do a little media criticism here covers that you know as if it's like oh that's a valid political argument <laughs> you know like th this evidence has been clear for decades and we've literally had people 
obstructing climate action, not just refusing to join it, but like even the infrastructure bill that passed today. They had to pass a bill that could get bipartisan support that basically stripped out most of the important climate provisions because God forbid any even moderate Republican would have to vote for that. That is going to look insane. Uh, I mean, I don't like it's almost hard to get your mind around the negligence. I think the second point then that that leads to is that like, you know, for, for people like us who talk about foreign policy, international relations, you read a report like that and you realize like at some point we're going to wake up completely to this. And this is going to be like the only thing that people do, you know, like the, the issue that governments work on together, the issue that the U.S. government has to be structured to deal with is going to be climate change for a period of decades. And, and you would hope that the combination of extreme weather events that we've already had and the reports that have come out like this will make that moment now. Because what needs to happen at Glasgow is there needs to be a kind of transformation of the ambition that governments have in terms of the targets they're setting, in terms of the actions that they're taking, so that they can literally transform the entire global economy into something that can leave the earth <laughs> habitable. You know, And that's going to take governments you know, spending money and having much stricter regulations. That's going to require people who invest money to only invest in clean energy. That's going to require all of us making different choices about the types of places that we live and the types of energy that we use. It's a whole of society effort that needs to start like yesterday. Um, Glasgow will be an opportunity, but I'm not that optimistic um, that, that we can get there. I think it does point to how important it is for this second infrastructure bill, the reconciliation bill, to, to go through so that the U.S. has some momentum when we go there and we can say, hey, we just spent X amount of money you know, tra- transforming our energy grid uh, so that we can meet you know, the, the goal of, of being carbon neutral by 2050. Um, but we'll see. We'll, we'll see if, if we can get yeah. it done that, that timeline. You're also seeing some like sort of near term political fallout, right? I mean, there are these major fires in Greece and, you know, some people are blaming immigrants. Others are blaming Turkey. Some are blaming corporate interests. So like the the spillover effect uh, into politics, especially like right wing politics, will be devastating. I'm going to road test a slightly lighter message that people can use for their Republican friends. So uh, according to some reports I read, Ben, bad weather is forecasted to reduce France's wine production by 30% this year. Bad weather in Italy is going to reduce their output by 10%. Winemakers in California are struggling to grow grapes in these heat waves. So here's a message for your drunk Fox News watching relatives. Deal with climate change or you cannot slug Chardonnay and yell at me about (laughs) Obama's birth certificate this Thanksgiving. Do you think that will work? I I, I mean, I hope so, except like I was thinking about this too, Tommy. It's like, it's so clear what's happening. It's so clear that we're suffering extreme weather events because of this. But if people won't even get vaccinated, you know, know. um, know. like to protect themselves, why would they support national policies that do? I mean, but uh, again, we can do this, you know, I mean, we we, like it's a it's a problem with the solution in terms of policies that can be pursued. Um, Yeah, maybe I mean, maybe that message can work. I mean, I I also think like, again, we have to remember that like, it's going to require countries to say things like, okay, we're not going to trade with Brazil if they keep burning down the Amazon. Like, it's going to take that kind of collective effort of like, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, voting off the island, the people that they refuse to deal with this. Unfortunately, the United States has often been the country that refuses to deal with it whenever we've had a Republican president. Um, but yeah, maybe the Chardonnay can be a wake-up call. I don't know. You know, I'm trying something here. 
Burning to death to own the libs, though. That, that's what we're dealing with. Um, you mentioned COVID. So some good news there. The Pentagon announced that members of the U.S. military will be required to get a COVID-19 vaccine starting in mid-September. That timeline gives the FDA the chance to complete its inexplicably long process and give final approval to the Pfizer vaccine. So the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, framed the issue as impacting military readiness, saying, quote, to defend this nation, we need a healthy and ready force. Seems obvious. Uh, President Biden backs his plan. So the Pentagon says that more than 1 million troops are fully vaccinated. Uh, another 237,000 more have had one shot. The Navy is doing the best uh, in terms of the service branches. They have the highest percentage of active and reserve sailors vaccinated with 74% having gotten one shot. The Army is bringing up the rear with closer to 50% vaccinated. Um, service members are already required to get lots of other vaccines. The exact list depends on your location. So this seems like a good step uh, and a piece of the puzzle that will get us closer to having the federal workforce in country vaccinated. But like, here's my question for you, Ben. Do you think DOD will actually punish the few holdouts who refuse to take it? And do you worry at all that those people become like right wing celebrities once it happens? I mean, you can guarantee that there'll be some like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene press conferences with some, you know, soldier who refuses to take a vaccine. Yeah, they'll be doing CrossFit um, and like not getting the jab. Yeah, I, 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 I think that this is great leadership by DOD. Um, I mean, as the most respected institution in the country, like for them to, to take this step with so many people in that institution, um, you know, that's what they should do. They should be like at the at the forefront of modeling the kind of behavior that uh, we should see in other institutions, right? Um, so, and, and like Lloyd Austin has been, look, I, I you know, there's things that we've criticized uh, about some some foreign and defense policies. On these matters of kind of personnel, he, you know, he deserves a lot of credit. Like they've taken steps to, to, you know, they've taken sexual assault cases out of the chain of command uh, to, to ensure better justice for victims and survivors. Um, a huge step that was long overdue. You know, they they restored the rights of transgender people to serve in the military. You know, now they're um, taking this step on vaccines. Like, uh, you know, it, it, you're definitely seeing a lot of integrity and a lot of leadership from DOD on how it's approaching, um, you know, its own behavior as an institution and, and what that's modeling for the rest of society. So, like, definitely a tip of cap there, but you're, you're definitely going to have... Um, some dead enders, you know, making common cause with Matt Gates and Tucker Carlson and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene. Oh, man. Uh, yeah. I can already feel the press conferences. Uh, yeah. Some dumber COVID news along those same lines as the Marjorie Taylor Greene. So some anti-vaccine activists in the UK tried to storm the offices of the BBC because they were mad. Oh, I love this. I love B this. The BBC yeah. was encouraging people to get the coronavirus vaccine. Um, but unfortunately, they stormed the wrong address. Uh, they entered a building or tried to enter a building that now houses apartments, restaurants, and studios that make daytime talk shows. So great work there. Well, British the friends. best is that they they had the whole premise of them storming the BBC was that they'd done the research about <laughs> right. the fucking vaccine. And then they hadn't even done enough research to know that the BBC wasn't in this building and hadn't been there for years. I mean, like, it, it just maybe you're not doing the right research, guys. Like, maybe maybe yeah. your sources on 5G or microchips in the vaccine uh, are, are the same sources that led you to think that the BBC is in a building that hasn't been in a few years, you know? Yeah, yeah, maybe not so much uh, louder with Crowder. Uh, the Washington Post had a good write-up of the whole incident, Ben, and it noted in this story, I, I had missed this, two men at an anti-COVID lockdown protest in Sydney, Australia last month were arrested and charged 
because they punched a police horse. So great stuff happening at these uh, anti-vax <laughs> protests all around. I mean, come on. Can we just lay off the horses at least? I mean, it's bad enough that you guys got to put us all at risk. They don't want to be there. You know, uh, like, they, yeah, they don't want to be there. I mean, give me a break. You know, that actually, oddly, is a good transition to our Olympic section because the Olympics are over. They were fun while they lasted. The Paralympics are starting, so we can all still get our fix of great competition. There was also a horse-punching incident, I believe, in in one of the events that I don't understand that involves like seven different things, including horses jumping over shit. But the thing I wanted to flag for you, Ben, is um, apparently Chinese state media are trying to claim that China actually beat the U.S. when it comes to the total oh, Olympic come on, medal guys. count. Come on, by claiming that medals won by Taiwan and Hong Kong belong to China. Your response? All oh, right, okay. <laughs> come on, guys. I mean, well, first of all, they were doing end zone dances like halfway through the competition about their lead in, in the gold medal count. And, and I'm sorry, you guys just couldn't get it done. I mean, I'm sorry that like we eclipsed you in the final days because our, our extraordinary U.S. women won another gold medal in basketball. So did our men, of course. Um, you know, we, we racked up the medals in track like we always do. Like, mm-hmm. just deal with it, right? And, and now you're going to tell me that you're going to count like Taiwanese medals, the, the, the people that want nothing to do with you because they're so appalled by what you've done in Hong Kong. Like, give me a fucking break. And, 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 and you know, putting aside the, uh, you know, jingoistic Olympics cheerleading here, we're, we're, we're entering into like what's going to be a pretty intense year of debate about the, the Beijing Winter Olympics in 2022. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. um, that's, that's looming out there because like you, you can bet there's going to be growing calls to, to boycott that or, or to at least downscale participation in some fashion. So, but for the time being, like, like we won, just deal with it. Like scoreboard is what it is, you know? Yep. Uh, a, a weird aside here. Uh, I don't know if you saw the women's diving competition. The Chinese women are incredible. There's some of the, like it's a, there was like some of the highest scores ever in the history of of diving. But I just I found it really odd that like these are 13 year old kids getting pushed literally off a, a high dive and forced to train for the Olympics. I mean, something about it just seemed off to have a, a a kid that young being forced to train like that. Yeah, I mean, look the. That's not a China thing. That's respect an for thing, the, I guess. Yeah, but. well, it is. Well, here's the thing. Like, I have a lot of respect for Chinese athletes. Like, there's some extraordinary Chinese athletes. I love watching them. I like watching the athletes from all the countries. I like that we win the medal count, but, like, I, I'm happy when other countries win medals. There is something, like, I don't... I'll put it this way. Like, if we had not won the medal count, I wouldn't really have given that much of a shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like I would, you know... Same. Like it shouldn't matter that much. You know what I mean? And you get the sense, you used to get the sense in the Soviet Union days that there was this kind of maniacal focus on pushing these athletes. And and often that led to doping, right? And like, like it's supposed to be fun. You know, it's all these weird sports. And when you look at the American athletes, it's these people that you know, they've been doing diving or they've been doing gymnastics or they've been doing water polo since they were like little kids, you know, and they just happened to be good at it when they were five. And and then they went into some programs and they're just really good. But I, I don't get the sense that like the U.S. Olympic Committee is, you know, like sitting there trying to program athletes from some young age to, so they can map out what the medal count's going to be four, eight, 12 years from now. If we are doing that, we shouldn't be. I mean, it's supposed to be fun. 
And 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 yes, while there's a professionalization of some of these sports, like most of this is pretty amateur. Speaking of which, you mentioned equestrian. Like, do you feel old realizing that like Bruce Springsteen's daughter won like an Olympic medal in equestrian? Like, I had no idea that 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 Bruce had a daughter who was like an Olympic athlete. You know, I mean. Good for the boss. I do think the equestrian stuff. Like, look, it's kind of cool, I guess. I don't know. It just sort of seems like kids who can afford the best horse are going to win, no? Well, I'm, you know, Springsteen sold some albums, and, you know, I'm sure she had a good yeah, horse, did. right? I mean, yeah. yeah w- like, yeah. we went through this with Mitt Romney. Um, I feel like Bloomberg's daughter was a really good Bloomberg's daughter. Thing. Romney had that dressage horse, Rafalka, um, mm-hmm. which was right, very helpful right. to us in the 2012 election. Um yeah. But yeah, like let's just keep the Olympics fun uh, if we can. I'm I'm looking forward to Paris. Um, that'll be a cool venue. We look next to Summer Olympics. We got Paris and L.A. I mean, that's pretty yeah, awesome. And you don't have to that'll worry cool. that much about politics, except unless the the Chinese are like boycotting the L.A. Olympics in 2028. But we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, okay, my final story I wanted to fly for you, Ben, is so stupid that I kind of wonder whether it's fake. So Business Insider reported that a Canadian startup is working with SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, to build a satellite with a pixelated display screen that can display advertising. Logos, art, whatever you want on it, I guess. And then they're going to launch it into orbit. So we'll have space ads. So from there, a selfie stick will display and live stream whatever is on this screen to YouTube and Twitch. This monument to, I guess, capitalism and human stupidity is supposed to pollute our skies sometime in 2022. People will be able to buy ads with various cryptocurrencies because, of course. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So here's my question. What idiotic nonsense do you think gets displayed first? Is it going to be like a Dogecoin meme, some sort of genitalia? Like how dumb <laughs> can we can we get this thing? Well, I think it'll be like the, you know, crypto utopian late stage capitalist kind of messaging, right? I mean, like, honestly, if you if you tried to write a dystopian book about capitalism going to space like 50 years ago and came up with the premise that in 20 in the 2020 space would become a place where billionaires have dick measuring contests about how high up they can go in rockets that they paid for personally and then you know crypto guys <laughs> were broadcasting ads that 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 aliens like what is the impression that we're giving these alien civilizations who are studying us you know can you imagine yeah, what they're thinking no. they're, they're looking at us from like a couple galaxies over there's some really smart beings who've been studying us like you know like mice you know in a laboratory and what they see is climate change happening so they see these people burning this beautiful planet that they have while billionaires are flying up into space and then figuring out ways to sell advertising there, you know, like, yeah, it, like rather than dealing with the climate crisis, like, can we just get the priorities in the right order? Can that yeah. be compatible with capitalism, please? Because if it's not, well, like we are going to burn ourselves to death here. Building uh, satellites with selfie sticks. I mean, what I mean, would you, 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 what what do you, what's your money on for the first ad? Oh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, you know, some sort of sort of penis drawing would be my money. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned like techno utopian. So Jack Dorsey tweeted yesterday. Yeah, uh, yeah, I actually wrote this down. Bitcoin will unite a deeply divided country and eventually world. That was the end of his tweet. And it just made me so unbelievably mad because I think I just finished um, An Ugly Truth, which is the new New York Times reporter book about Facebook. And it details all the ways that the like Silicon Valley, naive techno utopianism led to yeah. bad decisions and real world harm. 
like doing nothing about hate speech in the U.S., Burma, anti-vaccine, disinfo, et cetera. And like, I actually like Jack Dorsey. I think he's smart. I think he seems like a good person. But these same guys now want us to trust them when it comes to creating like digital currency or artificial intelligence or whatever the next thing is. And so like, I don't think they realize how pissed off people are at them, how little they deserve our trust. And like, I'm just, I'm done with taking his gospel, this like cultish belief that whatever some tech CEO says is accurate, especially when they have like a clear financial interest in us believing their bullshit, whether it's space or Bitcoin. I know a bunch of Bitcoin bros are going to yell at us because they always do on Twitter, but like, give me a break. Yeah. I mean, like the cautionary note, the world. uh, Yeah. But the cautionary note I'd say like to this crypto utopianism is, is, is the same one you did, which is techno utopianism has not worked out well, you know, and there might be some good things about crypto in the same way that there's some good things about social media. Um, but, you know, when you allow yourself to be convinced that you have the answer to all the world's problems, whether you're in politics or you're an entrepreneur, it tends to lead to, to some pretty difficult places. Um, and, and look, the reality of this, too, is like I, I've been going a little bit deeper in this recently. Um, you know, there's some interesting things about crypto, right? But the totalitarian governments like China, are not just going to sit there and allow, like, to, so the argument is this could be a way that, you know, dissidents in China can have a different currency or th- th- already you've seen the Chinese say, we're not going to deal with Bitcoin. We're going to start our own mines. We're going to set up our own crypto because of course that's what they're going to do. That's what any totalitarian government's going to do. And then of course what the U.S. government's going to do is say, we're going to have to regulate this because we don't know what people, you know, are laundering through this, who's washing dirty money through this. Never mind, it's not taxed. And so it starts to migrate to the kind of offshore haven type places. And 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 yeah, like I, I think that the the point for the crypto people before they yell at us, like make your case. Like there, there's some good arguments about, you know, the potential for crypto, but like this has not been thought through in a way that deals with the reality of the the world as it is, you know? Um, and, and, and uh, yeah, I saw that tweet and I saw you kind of take that on. Because I, I, yeah, Jack Dorsey is usually a slightly more thoughtful guy than than some of these other tech guys, but you, there's just this tendency to kind of hype whatever the next idea is without leveling with the the downside risks. And there's yeah. always a downside risk. And and here the downside risks are clear. Like this can be manipulated by criminals. It can be used to launder money. Like just you have to deal with that. Right. Make your case. But like in, there's un, no circumstance in which it's going to unite a deeply divided country. It's Bitcoin, man. It's just, it's just, I mean, it's shut up. going to unite. Just shut up. It's going to unite like crypto investors, you know, like, yes. but, but then it's not even going to unite gonna, them, by the way. It's going to unite Jack Dorsey in his summer house that he'll purchase well, it's gonna say, it's, it's not going to unite up, them yes. because you're going to have these guys who are, you know, running up the price and then crashing it so they can make money. Like, I don't know. I don't feel like that's uniting. Just, just rein it in. Just chill with the hyperbole. That's yeah. all it's we're saying. It's another venue Jack, for right. capitalism. That's what it is. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Just, Tone it down. Uh, Okay, we are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will hear Ben's interview about Hungary and Viktor Orban and Tucker Carlson and the awful uh, uniting of these right-wing schmucks globally. So stick around for that. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. 
You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Okay, I'm very glad to be joined by Zabot Pagny, who is a Budapest-based investigative journalist with Direct 36. You should definitely check out his work there. Um, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, you and I spoke f- for, for my book, uh, which, which this podcast audience has heard plenty about, about uh, Viktor Orban and some of the, you know, connections between Orban and other authoritarian movements, um, in Russia, in China, in the U.S., um, and and unfortunately, there's been a lot of more evidence for that uh, <laughs> that thesis in recent weeks. Some of which involves you personally. So I want to work through uh, each of those. We'll start with the thing that's been in the news here, which is Tucker Carlson, who's emerged as kind of the most prominent right wing commentator in America, making this kind of week long pilgrimage to Budapest. Um, what what was the reaction um, to Tucker Carlson's visit in Budapest. Uh, how, how did someone like you and and, and people there uh, take this this interest um, from from Tucker Carlson and Viktor Orban? Yeah, I mean Tucker Carlson is absolutely unknown to the Hungarian audience, obviously. So his visit was not about uh, not about Hungary or or the Hungarian people. It was about the U.S. audience or an international audience. It was a PR PR stunt. It was pretty obvious. Um, I mean, you can compare uh, his visit to, I don't know, J-Lo performing at the birthday party of Turkmenistan's uh, dictator <laughs> or Kanye West singing at, uh, at the wedding party of, uh, of uh, the, the Kazakh president's uh, uh, grandson and stuff like that. So um, meaning that this is a vanity project for Viktor Orban to try to bring to Hungary these, these so-called so uh, Western intellectuals, right-wing thinkers uh, as they label them, uh, because uh, frankly, the, the Orban government is increasingly alienated uh, with Trump gone, with Benjamin Netanyahu gone, with Bolsonaro in Brazil, struggling with all these ideological allies uh, seem to be, uh, the, their fortunes seem to be fading. So it's pretty important for Orban to, st- to still show that there's international support behind him, 
that this populist right wing wave that he's been writing is, is still existing. You know, Steve Bannon famously labeled Orban yeah. as Trump before Trump. Now it seems that now that Trump is gone and all these other people are on the verge of, of losing power, uh, suddenly the, the whole world is just uh, shrinking for Orban. So bringing in Carson is, uh, is just a show of force, I believe. You know, you and I have talked about, right, his effort to kind of be the vanguard, uh, the forefront of of this kind of right-wing nationalist and authoritarian movement, um, particularly in the West, you know, what he calls illiberal democracy. Um, and so clearly you can see why having Tucker Carlson there advances, you know, that sense of who he is. And as you say, might might try to suggest to the Hungarian people that there's still momentum for it, even after, you know, the U.S. election went the way it did. But you know, Orban's up for re-election next year. Um, do you think this help? Does this help him with with Hungarian voters to be seen as this kind of global figure of the far right, um, or, or is it just something that appeals to his vanity? I think it's uh, it, 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 it it. I mean, Carson and bringing him to Hungary it appeals to Republicans in the U.S. Uh, it's it's not about the yeah. domestic audience. It's not about winning votes in Hungary. It's about trying to dismantle this this bipartisanship in 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 the U.S., which is uh, uh, really uh, a risk uh, to Orban, meaning China. So the the whole China policy uh, that's uh, that's been pursued both by the Trump administration and by the Biden administration is a real risk to Viktor Orban, who's been establishing Hungary as this bridgehead uh, of Chinese influence uh, in the region. And uh, his his main uh, foreign policy goal in the U.S. is to try to dismantle bipartisan efforts uh, critical of the Hungarian government. And the only way to do that is to win over some Republicans, mostly on the fringes of the Republican Party, like Dana Aurora Bakker or, or uh, Paul Gosar from Arizona. These are some figures that uh, the Hungarian government has been uh, trying to, to court uh, in recent years. So it's 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 about mitigating the risks of uh, what consequences it may bring to to Viktor Orbán's government if he pursues this uh, pro-Chinese, pro-Russian uh, trajectory that he's been on. You mentioned China. You know, it was interesting to notice that uh, in the official transcript of the interview released um, with Viktor Orbán by the Prime Minister Orbán's office, they they censored out. Uh, some of Tucker Carlson's criticism of the Chinese Communist Party and a question to Viktor Orban. You know, when you and I spoke for my book, you you talked to me about some investigative work you'd done uh, and just kind of your understanding of how Orban had invited China in in terms of being part of the Belt Road Initiative um, so that they could get kind of a made in the EU stamp on things, um, uh, including Huawei, uh, the Chinese tech giant. You've also subsequently done some great reporting on this university uh, that uh, Orban has invited the Chinese to set up uh, in Budapest, you know, notably he kicked out the George Soros funded university uh, and has invited in this Chinese Communist Party funded university. Can you just explain to our listeners who probably aren't familiar with this, the, the nature of Orban's relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, in particular, this this university that he has plans for? Sure. I mean, you know, Hungary has become the most vocally pro-Chinese country in the European Union. Hungary is not the, the most important trade partner of China in the EU, of course. But Hungary, the Hungarian government has been um, um, basically vetoing any kind of uh, EU statement 
that uh, Brussels tried to put out criticizing human rights abuses, uh, uh, like the, the Uyghur uh, genocide or cracking down on Hong Kong. It was always Viktor Orban's government who, who tried to, to, to basically kill these initiatives. Uh, Hungary is, uh, is where Huawei has its largest manufacturing base outside of China. Uh, they are manufacturing 5G um, uh, technology here, which they are then exporting to, I don't know, 50 countries or so. Three, uh, two out of three Hungarian mobile carriers uh, have been contracting Chinese vendors to roll out the 5G networks in the country. And what you just mentioned is that uh, there's a Chinese university based in Shanghai called Fudan University, which will establish its first overseas campus uh, in, in Europe, uh, in Hungary, paid by the Hungarian taxpayers. And it's widely seen as a, as a political uh, or, or even more an intelligence um, uh, influence operation of China. Uh, which is, is seen as a real threat to the whole NATO alliance. Uh, so given all this, uh, Viktor Orban really needs to basically whitewash his image and use people like Tucker Carson not to talk about uh, his pro-Chinese and pro-Russian policies, but about migration, uh, uh, families uh, supporting uh, white Christian people instead of uh, of. Uh, um, of helping uh, poor Muslim people who are who are uh, fleeing uh, persecution and civil wars. Um, so this is this is just a distraction, and and also it's as again as I said, it's it's to win over Republicans in Washington D.C. not uh, to join uh, certain efforts that would be detrimental to the Orban government. So the the other thing that's been in the news recently that, that you were a part of was this kind of global effort that came to light um, in some investigative journalism about NSO, the private Israeli-based uh, surveillance outfit um, that was you know, essentially surveilling a mix of journalists, activists, um, basically opponents to a variety of autocrats and oligarchs around the world. Your name came up in this, right? I, I, what, what, how did you become aware that you you might have been surveilled and targeted by this kind of global apparatus uh, of NSO. Uh, and what do you make of that? Yeah, well, I, I had a very strange dual role in this uh, project called the Pegasus Project. I was both investigating uh, how uh, Pegasus, this military-grade spyware, was abused uh, in Hungary against targets, and I was also a target uh, of, of this tool. Um, so we were working together with Vizidacha Zeitung, the Zeit, the Guardian, the Washington Post, on, on trying to uncover uh, mass abuses of this surveillance technology. Uh, and it turned out that, uh, that I was also uh, uh, surveilled with Pegasus for a seven-month period back in 2019, when I was mostly investigating uh, certain Russian influence operations in Hungary, uh, which were not countered. By, uh, by the Hungarian authorities. Uh, and it really seemed to me that uh, those who surveilled me, we cannot directly say that it was the Hungarian government, but circumstantial evidence only point uh, to them. Basically, there's no one else who, who would have been interested in what I was doing and what other journalists uh, were doing. Uh, so it seems that the Hungarian government was mostly interested in my, my US sources and what I was writing about, for example, a Russian international bank that was relocating its headquarters to Budapest. And this bank was seen as a front 
for Russian intelligence, and there was a lot of criticism coming from the U.S. embassy, for example. Um, so, so basically, what we found is that there were at least four or five Hungarian journalists who were spied on with Pegasus. We also had two very influential media company owners who were owning uh, um, media outlets critical of the Orban government, and some opposition politicians also showed up. Uh, on this list, uh, and I have to stress that Hungary seems to be the only EU member state that um, uses Pegasus in a way that's not legitimate. So this tool was invented to counter terrorism and 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 to go after you know drug dealers, but Hungary seems to be the only EU country where it was used against political targets. Uh, other countries uh, uh, involved in in such uh, illegitimate surveillances were like uh, Mexico or Saudi Arabia or Togo or Rwanda. So it's it's really shocking to see Hungary on that list. And, and what has there been any reaction? I mean, basically, it seems like this came out. The Pegasus Project is extraordinary reporting. Kind of paints a picture of this kind of private outfit being utilized by a range of authoritarian governments or actors. Um, a lot of nexus to, to Gulf monarchies or Russia or perhaps the Hungarian government, as you say. But but it, what's been the response? Is you know have you have you felt like um, you know this is just one more drop in the ocean of mm. what we understand to be this kind of global drift towards authoritarianism, or, or do you feel like there's any any pushback on 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 groups like NSO? Well, I mean, domestically, uh, it's a scandal, of course. Uh, the Hungarian government is not even denying that they procured Pegasus and that they used it uh, against uh, journalists like myself. What they claim is that uh, uh, they only conduct uh, legal and legitimate surveillance against targets, meaning that there was a reason for surveilling me and in pro-government media, um, they try to smear me as a U.S. agent, as an agent of the CIA or something like that. Um, what we expect is that this will be a topic during our election campaign, which is just heating up. We are having elections ne next April. Uh, but I don't really see that how there could be any legal challenge, how, for example, I can seek legal remedies for, uh, for the surveillance that was put on me. Um, but I, I, I really, I, I, I'm really hopeful that this new uh, uh, push for the global regulation of, of such uh, spivers like like Pegasus uh, would would come to something because that's the only way to to put an end to to these things. Uh, the the other thing is that it's 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 really obvious that Pegasus was basically a gift by the Netanyahu government to certain allies yeah. in, in the Gulf countries and also in Hungary. We see um, basically that uh, Netanyahu's visit to Hungary back in 2017 and then a high-ranking Orban official's visit to Israel coincides with uh, with the targetings of of Pegasus. Um, and we also see this happening in India. So now that Netanyahu is gone, now that we have a new government in Israel, which is uh, set to to conduct some internal investigation, maybe maybe something will come out of that. And at least I hope that uh, that uh, Hungary and other governments who clearly abused this technology will be cut off from using Pegasus. Yeah, I was struck, you know, in in the when I when I went to Budapest and met you and 
Um, some of the other people I met with there had been um, spied on by Black Cube and another Israeli-based private intelligence outfit. Um, there, there's, there seems this kind of re- reoccurrence of kind of Israeli-based private intelligence, whether it's NSO or Black Cube. Um, in, in the case of Black Cube, this was around another election campaign where they were trying to target um, civil society. Um, what, how do you explain, uh, I, I mean, I, you know, you and I talked about this for the book, but the, the, for listeners, what this relationship was between Orban and Netanyahu mm. and that might have led to this kind of repeated use of, uh, of Israeli-based uh, spies or surveillance outfits? Well, there, there was a very obvious uh, quid pro quo uh, here. Uh, Viktor Orban had a tarnished reputation because of anti-Semitic comments uh, coming from his party. Uh, so Benjamin Netanyahu helped him with that, uh, having the, the Israel prime minister as your Paul, as your friend, um, defending you in public against such accusations. That's, that's something. Uh, and then, of yeah. course, Hungary not only uh, blocks and vetoes uh, EU statements that are critical of China or Russia, but also critical uh, statements of Israel. So Hungary became the most vocal pro-Israeli uh, government inside the EU. And now, after the, the Pegasus Project investigation, we also see that somehow the spyware was also part of the deal, uh, which was uh, given uh, by Israel to, to Hungary. Uh, and also this this whole interconnected relationship between Hungary, the Trump White House, and Netanyahu uh, is also something that's uh, that's uh, that, that 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 that's really really interesting because what we see is that basically Netanyahu helped Orban to open doors in the White House, uh, arrange uh, a visit uh, to to Trump. Um, so now that that both of both of his allies are gone, uh, you know, all what what's left for Orban is, is Tucker Carlson. Yeah, 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 yeah. Seriously. Well, I, I think you know it merits further uh, investigation. Uh, the, 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 those links, um, because you know their efforts to smear Fiona Hill, a Trump uh, administration official, for instance, by a Viktor Orban, you know, lobbyist uh, Connie Mack. But that's another story. Um, I, I did want to ask you before we wrap up here. You know, just you're obviously doing such great work, and some of your colleagues. But wh- how would you describe um, what the state of Hungarian media is today? Like how uh, how much independent media there is versus pro Fidesz, you know, Orbán's party media. Um, uh, you know, what wh- how, how should we think about that? Well, majority of Hungarian media is directly controlled by the government. They are not directly owned by the government, but by some very shady uh, conglomerates, which are seemingly nonprofit. But uh, the, the board of advisors and the board of directors are all uh, Orban loyalists. Uh, this means every local newspaper, uh, most of the um, uh, radios and, and TVs. Um, but we still do have some, some free um, investigative and, and other news media on the Internet. Uh, and as, as I said, uh, during the Pegasus project, we identified that very crucial uh, media company owners have been spied on by the Orban government, and one of them, uh, Zoltan Varga, who owns uh, currently the largest Hungarian independent news site, um, has been uh, telling about uh, blackmail and pressure uh, throughout the years coming from uh, the Orban government. They try to pressure him to sell 
his media uh, portfolio to people close uh, to the prime minister. So what we expect now that the election campaign is uh, is nearing is that such pressure on on um, other media company owners will just uh, be bigger. Uh, and we also see um, uh, very specific uh, smear campaigns directed at uh, journalists in- individually, like myself and, and others. We're going to be smeared as agents of George Soros, as agents of the CIA, uh, you name it. Um, and uh, this is because we're going to have the, the, the first competitive elections since, I believe, 2006, probably. Uh, now the Hungarian opposition has united. Uh, they're going to put out uh, a joint party list and one candidate uh, for prime minister uh, who would uh, be seen as uh, uh, the, the main rival of Viktor Orban. Uh, so the only way uh, for the Orban government to try to uh, win this election is, is basically to, to try to, to suppress the remainder of the free media so that there would be no airtime and no space uh, given to any other voice but the government's. Well, look, we, we'd love to uh, come back to you uh, later in the election campaign as that's heating up uh, to get your sense of that. But but thanks so much for joining. You you guys are crowdfunded, right, in part at Direct 36. Is yes, Direct 36, it's a, it's a small nonprofit. Uh, my my bosses used to be the, the editor-in-chief and a senior investigative reporter of Hungary's largest news site which is now now a propaganda tool of the government. Uh, they were fired and, and they uh, they left uh, their job to establish this small nonprofit called Direct 36. So basically, uh, we are crowdfunded through small donations. Well, uh, I you know, uh, can, can people support it uh, or is it just from within Hungary? Um, no, no, no. Of course, we we publish everything in English as well. So we, yeah. So we, so we, I, well, I've read your work in English, but I I so I encourage listeners both to read Direct Thirty Six because um, as you can see, uh, Seb Oaks' reporting is not just about Hungary; it's about the nexus of all these different forces. And if people can can support you guys, uh, they should because it's important to make sure that that we're backing up uh, independent journalism everywhere. But thanks thanks so much for joining us and, and we'll look forward to being back in touch. Thanks for being interested. Thanks again to Jabok Spani for joining the show. Uh, thanks again to uh, whoever purchases the first space ad. If it can be something less offensive than our guesses, I guess that'd be good. Uh, ben, thanks to your Mets. I'm sorry about the Philly series. Oh, man. Yeah, this has been an epic Mets collapse, man. And I was all excited to come to New York with the Mets in first place. Like, they've fallen from first place to third place in, like, a week. They, they can't score more than, like, two runs in a game. Players are dropping like flies. This is not good. This is not looking mm. good right now. It's you looking go to like game? the Mets, you know. I was going to yeah. go to a game, yeah, but uh, now I'm not so sure. <laughs> um, okay. We'll see. Yeah, it's also going to get – it's getting really hot here. It's making me realize. When I was there, it, yeah. it was like 70 degrees. It was perfect. I know. I couldn't was, believe it. Yeah, it was good when I got here. It's, it's, it's you know, it's going to be cracking in the 90s the next few days. We'll see. I'll try to get to a game for sure. Yeah. I love going to the Mets games. Well, I know the Delta stuff sucks and it's scary and everyone should be careful, but it was good to see New York back. It seemed like people were out. The city was alive. All the reports of its premature demise were uh, nonsense, as we knew at the time. So shout out New York. And it, it felt like, um, it, it felt like, it's back, but also like people are, you know, everybody's outside, everybody's eating outside. Like it feels a little bit more like pre-vaccine days, you know, um, in terms of the 
care people are taking. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Yep. It's a good thing. Uh, all right. Well, that's it for today. And we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.